0: I offer my respectful obeisance to my spiritual master, his divine grace, Srila Prabhupada, and to all of you, because you're a Vaishnavas and therefore the most worshipable in the three worlds. Hare Krishna. Nice uh, to see new faces. Nice to meet you. Krishna consciousness is the most natural and simple process or lifestyle because it matches our nature. Every, Every living entity is inclined towards love. This is the common denominator of every living being. And recently I saw a short documentary about how a, a lioness had lost her cubs and then she became attached to an antelope and uh, took it in as her own and was defending it from other other lions. It, it wasn't such a practical relationship in the end. And I won't get into the details, but what I did notice was and remember that the, the, the propensity, the nature of every soul is to love. And according to the, the Bhagavad Gita, our loving propensity, when we're in the material world, thank you, aloha, <laughs> yeah. the, we wear these flowers because it softens the heart, and that's one of the the, the most important aspects of bhakti is to soften the heart. So I was saying that the loving propensity can be projected in any, into any object. And as the old saying goes, at least it's old for me now, because I say it almost every day, where attention goes, energy flows. And that the same impetus we have for love is what drives us, To develop relationships in this world with people, things. And the teachings of Bhakti point out, or the great teachers of Bhakti point out, come on in, Lakshmi, you can sit up here. It's your spot. Is when we repose our love in people and things that are temporary although we have some temporary satisfaction, ultimately we become disappointed because the relationship changes and moves on. But when we repose our love in Krishna, who is the original divine source and is also a person, he can perfectly reciprocate our love. This is the basis of the process of Krishna consciousness. Is everyone okay? So far? And... Srila Prabhupada used to give this example about satisfaction. And that is that a little screw in a machine that's doing some practical service that falls out, that is, the screw falls out and becomes estranged from the machine, then becomes a forlorn little living entity with little value little or no value at all. Whereas when it's in the machine, it has great value because it's doing its service. So the way that service is, uh, or love, is most practically displayed and developed is through service. When we talk about love, for instance, if in in a relationship say, I love you, and then you don't do anything about it. Um, You don't do any service. Like, let's say you have a a spouse and your spouse comes home and you said, I was thinking about making you dinner, but I didn't. (laughs) Versus your spouse comes home and he, he You made dinner not that you were expected to it's a surprise but you did it some gesture of service appreciation then there's something tangible there in the relationship so when we say devotion in the in the context of bhakti we say devotional service because it's something active so the screw when it's in a machine it's doing service very valuable service. And when it comes, becomes a, detached from the machine and falls away, then it's just a little screw. And I had that example in my mind, that analogy. And once when I was in India, I stay there every year in Govardhan during Kartik. And there's a, a daily ritual that all the pilgrims do, and that's to walk around Govardhan Hill every day. It's about a 14-mile walk, just to get you started in the morning. And I was walking around, and everyone walks barefoot in the dust there, quite pleasant in most places. And I felt something hard under my foot. It didn't hurt, because it was embedded in the ground. But I looked down, and there was, lo and behold, a little screw. So I rescued it. I picked it up. I dusted it off. And then I remembered that analogy, and I was thinking, and had a little conversation with the screw. Where did you come from? What, what glorious past did you have, little screw? You came out of some machine somewhere that, uh, where you were doing service and you were making a difference and now you came loose. Somehow or other, you came loose. And now you are here lying in the dust. And uh, I kept it. I have it on my desk to remind me of my own existential situation that my guru reminded me of, and that is that when I'm engaged in service, connected to my original divine source, then the value is inestimable. And not that the screw itself is inestimable, but the relationship is when I'm serving. And therefore, the, the Bhagavatam says there are many traditions of, of and practices around the world, religious traditions, spiritual practices. In the Bhagavatam doesn't judge any of them except for looking at a particular standard in which, in which it says, "Savai samparotarmo, yatuti toje, Aitukiya pratta, ya yatma that for all humanity, the best kind of spiritual practice is that by which one can develop self, the, the spirit of selfless service to our original divine source. And the second aspect is that it's uninterrupted. It's not something that I do periodically, but I'm able to live in it at every minute. Like we remember St. Francis, and he saw everywhere he looked the, the divine presence. He would look in water or the mountains, in animals, and feel a kinship. This is something also that's mentioned in the Srimad Bhagavatam there's a story about the avaduta Brahman. And avaduta Brahman. avaduta means somebody who is not, in, not concerned with the material world anymore. He lives in it, but it, it no longer uh, becomes a, as, as a concern for him or her. And so one day the king, Yadu, the famous king, he happened to be going through the wilderness with his retinue. And he met this Avaduta, this like a self realized sage living in the wilderness. And he struck up a conversation with him and he found him to be a perfectly enlightened person. And he asked him, How did you get like this? And the Avaduta replied, I live here with all my gurus. And the king said, But there's nobody here. You're in the wilderness, you're by yourself. He said, no, no, I'll show you. And he started pointing to various entities around him, starting with the mountain. He said, I've, I've observed the mountain, and I've seen how it gets pounded by rain, thunderbolts, wind, but it tolerates. And still, it goes on serving. It gives clear, clean water. There's all kinds of herbs and vegetation to the animals that live there. And never complains. It's stoic. So I learned that quality from the mountain. And then he points to the tree and says, the tree is a servant. Gives shade. It gives fruit. Is a place where it's almost a universe unto itself, supporting life. And even after... It's, it dies. It provides wood for people to build shelter. It's, it's always giving in the mood of service. So from the tree, I learned this ideal of selfless service. And he said, one day, when he was sitting in the field, he saw a karari hawk fly high into the sky with a mouse in its clutches, his breakfast. And as he flew higher, two bigger hawks assailed the Karari hawk, and grabbed onto it and said, give us the mouse or die. And the smaller Karari hawk immediately let go of the mouse and flew away. He said, from this I learned the power of detachment. That It's not worth holding on to things when they are dragging my life or threatening my life. My life is more important than my life situation. In this way, all around him, he found lessons from nature because his mind was attuned to finding the lesson in every situation that he was in in life. And this is one of the aspects of spiritual advancement mentioned in the Bhagavatam, that even when adversities come to a person who is on the spiritual path, he or she takes the lesson and becomes fortified by it. In this way, a person is never interrupted in the practice of spiritual life thinking, this is spiritual, this is something else. So the two qualities the Bhagavatam mentions are called ahaitukya pratiyata. One is selfless service. In other words, service for service. And remarkably, counterintuitively, when we do selfless service, we grow. We actually feel bigger. We feel fortified. We feel happy. Our consciousness expands when we do the right thing. For instance, when you tell the truth. Think of a time when you had the opportunity to tell the truth or shade it. And then you, with a slight pinch, you feeling a slight pinch, you told the truth anyway. How did you feel afterwards? I know I'm taking a risk making this survey, because maybe someone will say you wish you had but. I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads and smiling. There's a sense of, of, like, one time I have this chair I've been sitting in for many years. I think I need a new chair eventually to, to write. And the arms were out as an office chair. So I looked around and I found a local place where I could maybe find some replacement parts for it. So I took the two parts down to the local office repair shop and I asked the guy, do you have anything like this? And he went and rummaged around for about 20 minutes and came out with two new arms. They were used, but much better than the ones I had. He said, well, I'm not sure if these will work, but you take them home. If they work, you bring me back $30. So I took them home. They worked, and the next day I had a flight to India. So I went to India. I came back five weeks later and there were a lot of things to do and i remembered oh my friend who gave me the arms and of course the prospect wasn't really a prospect for me but i saw there was a choice i could say well he'd never he didn't take my name he'd never seen me before i could just procrastinate and six months could turn into a year and then they'd go out of business and it, it just never happened but i remember my father who <laughs> who always insisted that uh, we try to take the high ground, that is myself and my brother's and sister's sister. And so I, you know, I took the time, I drove back to the store, and I walked in. I don't think he even remembered the incident, and that was part of it. He m- might not have even remembered. There was no paperwork. It was just like, I don't even know if these are, he said, it's going to work, and you know, don't worry if they don't. But anyway, I walked in and I, I handed him his $30. And then I saw there was some recognition. Oh yeah, I remember you. And I remember the incident. He said, okay. And I turned around and I was walking out of the store and he said, wait a minute. He said, thank you for coming back. <laughs> and uh, I, I barely fit out the door because I felt like my consciousness expanded because I did the right thing. It's a very simple principle, but the when when we do the right thing, when we do follow dharma, then we expand. And so the process of Krishna consciousness or the the spiritual practice means to be situated in in that truth all the time. That means a haitukya pratyata. You're living with an awareness that there's a higher cause to life and that there's a witness to everything that we do and we live in harmony with that. So then the question is very frequently asked, uh, what about our existence in this world? I mean, we have so many things and duties, obligations and we have to take care (coughs) of our finances, we have to fix the house, you have to have a car. There's, is this, does this sound reasonable? for some of these things that you have one person only, and he has a, <laughs> and he has a farm <laughs> with cows. So, um, yeah. How do we deal with the complexities of the of the world and all the things in it, and how do we deal with things? And my spiritual masters gave another analogy. And he said, if you take an iron rod and you put it into fire and you leave it in the fire and make the fire very hot, then after a while the iron rod will transform from iron to fire. And it's no longer an iron bar but now it becomes fire. If you've ever seen a red hot bar it's actually an amazing thing. I saw one recently in Japan when we were in a mountainous region in Takayama where they still do blacksmithing and I saw them putting it in in the, in the morning and when we walked past the blacksmith in the afternoon the, the iron rods that were there were glowing red hot you couldn't see that they were iron anymore, you could only see that they were fire and so the second principle besides being connected through selfless service is that everything that we have, which can be problematic because it can become overwhelming, when used in the service of our original Divine Source, Krishna, it becomes transformed from matter to spirit. And therefore, everything that we have can be used and it's not a doctrine of renunciation. The idea that we should renounce the world or give up everything for the sake of spiritual life is impractical because it's not our nature to renounce. In fact, there's a phenomena which is compared to a pendulum swing called boga tiaga, that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the, the earliest teacher of the process of Krishna consciousness 500 years ago, told his followers, and that is that when I try to enjoy things and keep them for myself, after some time they feel a burden and I get sick of them. Anyone? Ever have anything that you wanted and then you didn't want it? Mm -hmm. Have you ever seen a situation where someone said, I love you, I love you, and then a while later they said, I hate you, I hate you? I mean, it's the stuff of of dramas and one's own dramas in life and so forth. And our relationship with things is on again, off again. And so oftentimes I try to enjoy, and then I become tired of it. So then I say, let me get rid of it. So trying to enjoy things and claim that they're mine is called boga. And then the spirit of giving them up again is called (coughs) tiaga. but neither of them is stable. I can't keep things as my own because they don't stay with me, nor can I fully enjoy them. And when I give them up, then I regret it and I try to get things back. So I go back and forth. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu pointed out, as did my guru, that the stable path is the middle path called the path of dedication or selfless service. And it means to use all things that I have in my life for a higher cause in service and when I use them in service then they transform from being material things and they take on this fire like quality as an iron bar bar does that's put into fire in the fire of selfless service they become transformed I'll give it another example that my guru used to give of how practical this is, like a bank teller. Bank teller handles thousands, tens of thousands, even millions of dollars in a day, touching it, counting it, and putting it into the right place. If he or she takes one dollar out of that $10,000 that comes in in one afternoon, he or she's a criminal and we'll be fired for that. But I'm, there's so much here, I'll, <laughs> I'll just take one dollar. Because uh, it's not, it doesn't belong to the bank teller. Bank teller is handling it. So a bhakti yogi sees that all the things that I have in my life, I'm using for a higher cause. i I'm not. They're not mine. They belong to someone else. And this is called the Ishavastra spirit. This is mentioned in the Oldest Sanskrit literature in the world, the Upanishad, which says, Ishavasya midam sarvam yat jagatyam jagat tena tyat tena bhunjita Everything animate or inanimate within the universe is controlled and owned by the Lord. Therefore one should accept only those things necessary for oneself which are set aside as one's quota. And one should not accept other things, knowing well to whom they belong. So a person who's spiritually conscious is aware of the fact that all the things that I have in my life are given to me as a bequeathment to use in service. And if I take more than my quota, more than necessary that I need to do selfless service, then you can take as much as you can handle there 's no limit as long as you, that you can use it properly then there 's a transgression, and there 's a reaction for that, which means I have to suffer the burden of keeping these things that keep me captive but a person who lives uh, simply or not but uses all the all the things in a higher service then is not burdened by holding on to things or, the, or his or her relationship with the things of this world. So yoga comes from the root word yuj, which means to connect. And it's cognate with the word yoke in English. When you yoke uh, two bulls to plow the field, they're held together with a, what is it called? With a yoke. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He has bullocks, or plows the fields in his natural form, And in a similar way, yoga means to be constantly in contact with our original divine source. And according to the, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam, all the bhakti teachings, one who has this sense of connect- connectedness uh, feels happy constantly. And for lack of that, I'm searching the world to find some replacement. And it's not to be had through retail therapy or um, any kind of other temporary measure. It's had, it's had through selfless uh, and uninterrupted service to our original divine source. So bhakti process means to stay in touch w- with, with that spirit of service, always. One of the best ways... To do that, according to Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who quoted from many, many different uh, bhakti wisdom literatures, was to chant the names of the divine. Because music, rhythm is the universal language. Even animals like it. They hear a nice rhythm or they hear some melody. They'll come running to find out curious what it is. I see dogs sing along with piano music and get 25 million hits on Facebook and so forth. And when you add the, the transcendental vibration to music and rhythm, there's an immediate um, resonance with the higher self. The science of mantra meditation means that we are composed. All of us sitting here I have two energies right now. Just to make it simple, higher and lower energy. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, "Bhumi apo analo vayu. This is describing the lower energy, called for the sake of practicality, material energy. "Bhumi analo vayu eva sha bhina prakriti He says, the lower energy which you can witness for yourself it composes your body is earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence and ego these comprise the gross and subtle material elements next Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita apareyamitasvanyam prakritim vidhimi param jivabhutam mahabahoyayedam daryate jag. besides this lower energy There's a higher energy, a superior energy, which is the atma, or the spiritual self, that is you. Your body is a robot. It's a biomechanical robot. And you probably gave it biofuel this morning if you had breakfast. All uh, transformations of sun energy that uh, are made up of gross elements and you ate it and now it's being digested and somehow miraculously distributed to different elements of your body but if you examine your body you'll see that it's mechanical for instance this is a good example of a lever when I'm moving my arm like this and you can notice if you would for a minute that you have a heart pumping somewhere around this region if I'm not mistaken could you feel for it for a second Is it there? Make sure. Yes. It is. Okay, good. It's pumping away. And this is a mechanical process. We're not machines. And the Bhagavad Gita points out that who we are, the energy that we're composed of, is categorically different from the lever and the pump and the the river of water mostly that this body is made of we are the resident in the body we're the travelers in the body so when we when we develop an awareness of this fact that i'm not my body that this according to krishna in the bhagavad gita is called knowledge to understand the difference between the body and the knower of the body and we're the knower that's within the body. And so when uh, we interact with the world the most important interaction that we have according to the Bhagavad Gita and all the other wisdom texts on yoga is with the sound that we hear. Because sound is the most subtle element and it also is transformational. And it can either uh, pull us down into material consciousness or it can lift us into transcendental consciousness. Therefore, the ancient Vedas say, anavriti Shabda," that you can become uncovered, your spiritual nature can be fully uncovered by the process of hearing transcendental sound. And this uh, can be demonstrated or the principle of resonance is is demonstrated, I I should say, I demonstrate it quite frequently when I give talks in various places about mantra meditation by taking a simple physics experiment kit with me, which uh, is comprised of two tuning forks made of aluminum attached to individual boxes, and a rubber mallet came with the kit. So I ask everyone to listen carefully, and I strike one tuning fork with the mallet and it makes uh, a tune and then I grab onto it to stop the vibration but the vibration continues because the other tuning fork picked it up and continues to vibrate. And everyone says, ooh, ah, and is amazed. And this um, demonstrates the principle of of resonance and also what's called excitation. When you introduce higher uh, energy to another entity, the second entity can pick up the energy and come to a higher level of energy or resonance. And every body in this world, every element, has a certain frequency at which it resonates. This is talked about a lot in quantum physics, There's a characteristic resonance of every element. And there are certain sound vibrations that resonate with my lower self, or I should say the body. And there's a kind of vibration that resonates with my atma or my soul, that spiritual sound. And that's the doctrine of practice of chanting the sacred names of God and the mantras from the Vedas that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advocated for this age that if you sincerely sing the mantras or repeat them through mantra meditation you'll notice the resonance resonance with your higher self it bypasses the uh, material body and immediately resonates with with the self and when that resonance occurs there are byproducts which means the You become aware of your full potential, your spiritual potential. You also develop an awareness that I am not the physical body. This is quite a liberating experience because although the physical body is very much necessary for our ambulation and other kinds of computations and interactions with the physical world and we don't want to take it lightly or get rid of it, it's not us, it's a vehicle. And vehicles, as everybody in this world knows, everybody I'm sure in Washington, D.C. knows, can be a real pain. For instance, does anybody here have a car? Do you love it? Somebody taught me, if you go, the first time I bought a car, one of the first lessons they taught me was don't love the car because it won't love you back. And I had a friend in high school, he always wanted to buy a Porsche. And years later, I saw him, many years later, and I said, did you ever get that card? And He said, yes, and I said, did you like it? And he said, the best time was the night before I bought it. <laughs> and he said, after that, I was always worried someone would steal it, scratch it, and so forth. And oftentimes, at uh, corporate talks, I do this experiment where I ask if anybody drove to the event, and they say, yes, and I say, where's your card, and they say, it's out there. And I say, let's, let's imagine for a second, that we're all sitting here talking and then you hear a screeching sound and the smash of metal and glass. And it's right in the proximity of where your car was parked. And then you ascertain through triangulation, that that was my car. And then, uh, how do you feel? Does anybody have a car here? Yes. You have a car? Okay, so Prabhu, you have a car. And let's say it's parked out there, we hear that screeching sound. Somebody's hot rodding around uh, tall Cedar Lane and uh, sideswipes your car. And how do you feel sitting here now that you've, your car was hit? Anxious. And what are the symptoms of your anxiousness? I must be worrying. worrying means what are the physical repercussions? Somebody, any doctors or nurses in here? Heart palpitations, the heart goes up. What else? Yeah, perspiration starts coming off his brow. Anxiety, the mind's running. Now, let's say you run to the window and you look out, and you notice it's not your car; it's it's a Lakshmi's car. <laughs> now, how do you feel? Uh, Much better. No more perspiration. <laughs> no more heart palpitations. How does Lakshmi feel? Of course, he's a self-realized soul, so he doesn't even care. But if you were an ordinary person, you know, he would immediately go through all these changes. And we we transfer our awareness, our consciousness, our sense of ownership into material elements. We are spiritual souls, categorically different from the material world. However, we have this power of projection, where I look at something, and it's something. But then I think of it for a while. I contemplate it, and I say, well, that's mine. For instance, a lot of people live in America right now. I'm not sure how many. How many? Around 330 million. 330 million? Around. Around 330, thank you, sir. And, and uh, many of them walk around saying, this is my land. I was taught that when I was a kid. There was a song, <laughs> this is my land, this is your land. And uh, from California to the, do, 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 I can't remember the words, but it's like, this is your land. And, uh, and pledge allegiance to it. And so there's a sense it was my land, but I just got here. I showed up at somewhere in a hospital in Walnut Creek. And not only that, they were waiting for me when I came out, a little name tag. I wasn't named anything when I came out. They had a name tag and they slapped it on me, and said, your name is Willie. And that was it. It's like, walk around and act like Willie. And by the way, you're an American. And so then identify, and then it's like, here's your sports team. And then the, your sports team is, you have to root for it. And if they lose, then you become morose, right? And you walk around and say, uh, we lost. And say, like, you didn't lose, you didn't play. You just watched it and identified with it. If you were in India, Pakistan playing against each other, if you were Pakistani, just imagine then you'd be happy if they won and uh, instead of thinking I'm an Indian. So these are all called upadis or designations. They're temporary designations. I project myself into matter and I think this is me. So just as much as I become attached to my car, I also become attached to this particular body. And one atma, which is this pure spiritual being, thinks I'm a man. Another one thinks I'm a woman. Another thinks I'm a cat. Another one thinks I'm a dog. But actually, we're none of these things. We have nothing to do with the material uh, gross or subtle body at all. It's just that I project myself into it. So the very practical way of utilizing what I have right now is compared to taking a thorn out with a thorn. It's, it's a problem for me that I've developed these identifications with the material world, because I'm not material, I'm spiritual. Therefore, practically speaking, Yoga means using everything for service, for selfless service to our original divine source, Krishna. And also engaging in the direct process of communion with the Supreme through uh, associating with transcendental sound vibration. And the quality of the sound that I associate with in this world will determine the quality of my life. This is a simple formula that anyone can try out for him or herself. The quality of the sound that I listen to will determine the quality of my life. What did I just say? Yes. Because we are containers. And if you look at the word um, content, it's, uh, you can say you're content or it 's spilled the same way when you say content, so our content, what we allow to stay within our hearts, our minds, if you like that is dependent on what we keep inside our inside ourselves, what we allow to go in through the ear, ends up within the heart. One day, when I was walking in my neighborhood in Burlingame, California, I was doing some Mantra Meditation I was I was walking along, and I was looking around for writing topics actually, and I saw a storm drain there are many of them obviously along the um, along the street to take care of the water that runs off and Then I noticed that there 's a placard I had never known it before noticed it before, but there 's a placard with a fish on it, and then the The admonition, no (coughs) dumping drains to bay, because San Francisco Bay is not so far away. And then I realized that people may think that, well, it doesn't matter what I put in here, because I live in the suburbs and nothing matters. So (laughs) I just pour whatever I want, and it goes in the drain. It's gone. It's not gone. (laughs) It went to the bay. And it doesn't matter how far away you live because water seeks its own level and it goes down to a repository. And in the Bay Area, the repository is the San Francisco Bay, which is very polluted because a lot of people contribute to that in various places. So then I started thinking of how the process of Bhakti Yoga says be careful what you pour in here. And if I were to get a tattoo, don't I think I will, but if I did, I put it right here and I put that little fish. I say, no dumping drains the bay. Because this is the little storm drain I was I was imagining. And it, it goes from air to the bay of my heart. And it stays there and it gets polluted. So those who practice bhakti yoga are careful about what they allow to go in the ear because it ends up in the heart. And they're deliberate about taking in spiritual sound. Those, when we imbibe, which actually means to drink, spiritual sound through the ears, then it has this effect that it floods the heart with this transcendental sound and it actually pushes out the other kind of impurities. So those are a few of the basic ideas that one could understand the whole process of bhakti yoga. practically. Engaging everything in the mood of selfless service, also understanding i 'm not my body I don't belong to this world I 'm only here as a temporary resident i don 't even have a green card for this place. what to speak of a, a lease on the body I looked for it wasn't it in the car or any of my files that said how long I get to stay in this body. nothing's guaranteed so The yoga scriptures say, be aware of this. Be self-determining. Don't just go along with the crowd. Understand that you're a living entity, and you're responsible for your own spiritual advancement. And you should take advantage of the opportunity while you can. Those are a few ideas. And uh, now we can have reflections or questions, I think, if we have time. Loka, do we have time for questions? Okay. So a reflection means anything that you heard that's uh, stuck in your mind, which means that you can take it out of here in your pocket, and when you walk out, neighbor will come over and say, what was that guy talking about in there? And here's the one thing you'll say. Or if you have a question that you think will expand the conversation in a helpful way, then you ask a question. And if you, have a, if you have a bad or a stupid question, you can ask that too, because we give $100 for every stupid question. But let me check and see. Do you have $100? <laughs> what would you like? Uh, we have more room here for people to come and sit. Would you like to move up? Yes. It's not carpeted, though. You come into the infield, out of the outfield. You come up on the <laughs> in case I... Lay a bunt down here. We've fit as many as a thousand people in here. Even on Friday. Yes, I'm Rita Nam-prabhu. And we have an extra microphone. And hopefully it Thank works. You so Good.
1: You spoke about how. Everything can be used, everything that is used in the right consciousness is spiritualized. If, if we're using it in a, in a mood of selfless service. And I was thinking about how you could be a king and own vast wealth and use it for Krishna and be spiritualized, or you could be a Babaji, but if you're selfish, Babaji more,
0: means somebody who goes sorry. off into seclusion and just you know, keeps very few possessions and just stays in meditation all the time.
1: Yeah, apparently a renunciant, but be selfishly attached to your few things. That's what I was reflecting.
0: Yes, that's a good point. It, it's, it's not about the level of wealth you have. Anyone can, who can, as I said, appropriately handle many things, because they have the wherewithal to do it or the desire to do it, but uses it in service is um, not prohibited from having extra things, if they can be used in service. In fact, the, the directive is given by one of the disciples of Rupa Goswami in a long Sanskrit verse. It says, Anasak yatara yatarha mupuyunjita nirbanda krishnasambande yuktam Vairagyamuchite. So it says, he says, Rupa Goswami writes that anything that can be used in service of Krishna that we don't use, and we renounce it. We say, I don't want to keep it. This is what's called Faugu Vairagya. Vairagya means to renounce something and Faugu refers to a river in India which is dry. But right underneath the surface, there's water. It's a, a underground river. It looks like sand, but if you dig a few feet underneath, you'll find the water. So there's this, uh, the analogy means that I may be renouncing the world on one level, but still the desire to enjoy it is there. So if I falsely renounce things that can be used in service, then this is called incomplete renunciation, or falgu vairagya, because I may still be attached to them, but I gave them up uh, inordinately, unnecessarily. So yes, uh, in fact, there's a famous king mentioned in the Srimad Bhagavatam, the quintessential literature on bhakti yoga, devotional service. His name was Ambarish. And Ambarish was a wealthy uh, king, And it's described how he was always engaged in devotional service, and he used his vast wealth to do more service. And he was personally always engaged in serving Krishna, even though he had all these things. But he's mentioned as one of the great renunciates. Because renunciation doesn't mean just unnecessarily giving up things. Rather, it means using things in service. On the other hand, there there are others who are renunciates, who barely kept anything like Raghunath Das Goswami. He came from a a billionaire family about 500 years ago at the time of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But he gave up everything and rather took to the path of renunciation and he stayed pretty much in seclusion and chanted. And both of them are appreciated because they um, engaged whatever temperament and whatever... um, particular circumstances they had in service. So that's the principle, not just renunciation or or holding on to things. Those are not looked at separately. It has to do with how one connects them through devotional service. Thank you. What else? Yes, Manana Murari. Yeah, yeah, I
2: like the example that you are given like $30 if you give back and you feel yourself expanded. So whenever actually we do something good, even if it is, uh, uh, you can get away with it, but still actually if you do it good, then actually you feel the the energy expand, the circle actually, you get more power. And, uh, but sometimes actually we should not judge, just by that act that somebody cannot, is not able to do it. So, uh, so, that's, I think that's a fine line, right? So, for, for yourself, actually, definitely it is good. You should always do the right thing. But still, actually, if somebody, if you sometimes actually think, oh, I do it like that. And I should not judge like that. That's what I'm thinking. And, and it's a question also. So
0: What's the question?
2: The question is actually, I should not judge, like, if I see somebody is not able to do up to what I think actually they should do it. So there should not be any judgment, that's what I'm thinking. It's good there was
0: no question mark at the end of that statement. Okay. If you want to ask a question, put a question mark at the end and I'll try to answer. The question starts with how, should, this, <laughs> what. What, when, why, where, or how.
2: So how should I balance my, uh, uh, the right, ex- um, right things to do, the uh, right attitude, without any judgment? Well,
0: one great devotee I know, his name is Govinda Maharaj, he was a disciple of uh, Sridhar Maharaj, one of my Prabhupada's, one of Prabhupada's godbrothers, my guru's godbrothers, said once, my religion is finding fault in myself. I have plenty of fault to find in myself without looking for it in others. I'll be busy the rest of my life. And Srila Bhakti Sananta said the same thing. He was the guru of my guru. And he used to say that always try to refine yourself. Don't, don't make it a business to try to refine others unless they sign up for it. And even if they sign up for it, which means they become your student, you still have to be careful. Because people, if you haven't noticed, don't like to be corrected very much. So you have to be really tactful and artful about how to refine other people. The best way is to set an example. The best way to teach is to show by example. And um, if they specifically ask you, then even be careful and present it in a way that they can take it. Are there other questions? Or Yes, Prabhu.
1: Maybe this would be a super question for
0: Okay. Do you have a hundred dollars? Yes. Okay. Let's see. I'll check. You get a hundred dollars if if we deem it to be stupid.
1: (laughs) Thank you for all this uh, teaching. Uh, I'm just in school I just started. My name is Om. Om. Uh, And I'm an Ayurveda student, so I'm still learning with the Vedas and all, uh, Samhitas, and uh, so I agree totally with you with the resonance of sound. You know, even uh, when you chant the name of Krishna, and I learned last in last lesson that when you recite Krishna's name, so I said, ah, I feel that my mind is still unrestful because I'm still reciting without knowing why you am it. But Dvaree told me, he told us that when you recite his name, he is sitting, he comes sitting with you. That was a great teaching for me, so I'm carrying it with me. Every minute. And when I recite Krishna saying, He is coming and sitting with me, and I have support, I have a submission to Lord Krishna, and He is taking care of everything. The stupid question is about the body. So you mentioned that our body may be, uh, may be termed as a container where we are putting the contents of contentment. We have a body, we know this is made of. Mahavatas and elements going to vanish with all those elements. But for the proper prana to flow, is it not our responsibility to keep our body uh, healthy, safe, so that our consciousness which we experience through the body? So that's my question: Is consciousness body?
0: That's your question, unfortunately, I can't give you a hundred dollars
1: because it was a very good
0: okay. question. <laughs> I know you tried to, get, to ask a question and get a hundred, but <laughs> we're not going to be able to hand it over. Uh, it's an excellent question. The body is very much necessary. I'll give you three citations from the uh, Bhagavad Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam, which describe that. The first is... There's a kumbh Mela going on back there. The first is... This is from the Bhagavad Gita, the sixth chapter, which is which is about uh, meditation and the yogi. And Krishna says, Yukta Yukta Karmasu, Yukta yoga dukha." Herein he says, one should be yukta in the way that one takes care of one's uh, physical body and psychological body. So he says. Yuktahara, ahara means to, to eat. He said, don't eat too much and don't eat too little. Next he says, don't recreate too much and don't recreate too little. And third he says, don't sleep too much and don't sleep too little. In other words, you have to be balanced. This is the essence of health, even in Ayurveda, to balance out the doshas so that everyone that, that were healthy and balance. So that's a recommendation. The Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam says, labo yavata jiva jignasya narto that you should live a healthy life. But the reason for living a healthy life is so that you can have a platform from which to inquire more and go deeper into your spiritual life. A simple formula for that is, Eat to live, don't live to eat. Thirdly, and actually I thought of another one. Thirdly, in the Srimad Bhagavatam, there's a scene, opening scene in the 10th canto of the Srimad Bhagavatam about the appearance of Krishna in the world when Devaki and Vasudeva were just married. They're going home in a chariot. Kamsa's driving the chariot. That's Devaki's brother. And then there's an omen, a voice that comes from the, from the sky. It's actually coming from the demigods. And they say, "Kamsa, you're a fool. The eighth child of your sister is going to kill you. So why are you taking care of her? So then he, he's such a abominable person. He grabs the hair of his sister and draws his sword and is about to kill her. And then Vasudev begins to give various arguments of why he shouldn't do it and try to save his wife. And within that, the Srimad Bhagavatam says, it's the duty of every person, while you have this physical body, to stay in it and keep it healthy as long as possible, because you need it as a vehicle. In fact, the human body is so unique, it's described... Uh, in the 11th canto of Shrimad Bhagavatam, labbham sudur bahusambhavante manusha martala manitam hadira says that the human life is is uh, rarely achieved. It, it's, there are 8,400,000 species of life according to the Vedas and the human life is very, very rare. It's got a specific purpose which is to use the fine, refined intellect to inquire about the ultimate purpose of life. And so, if you get it, it's like you won the lottery of the species. So you have to take really good care of it, but specifically so that you can inquire and understand. And the the last uh, point that Prabhupada makes, and it's not the last point he makes, it's the last point I'm going to make, about this, in the eighth canto with Gajendra, the elephant who... Was a, he was a famous elephant, he got attacked by a crocodile in the water and was trying to free himself, but because he's an animal of the land he didn't have the strength while he was in the water and the crocodile prevailed. So, of course, he was saved because of his prayers. It's a long story, but the point given in there, Prabhupada gives this point, that every person has to find a natural condition of life from which to go on and practice their spiritual life. Everybody's different. Not everybody fits into uh, the same category. Some people are uh, predisposed to renunciation. And they feel happy in that ashram. And at certain times of our life, we may feel happy in in a renounced situation. And later on, we may not so much. So his point was, you should find what's most natural for you so that you can fight with maya and go on with your practice. So it's very much, It's Prabhupada advocated uh, healthy practices, as you are learning and also will be advocating for people, and it's very helpful. It's like if you have a car, I mean, you cannot change the oil, and um, not take care of it at all, and then it falls apart, and then you can't use it in service. And the idea is, it's not yours anyway. If you're thinking that it's being used in service, it's and then it's not mine, you should take extra care of it. What if someone has you take care of their house and then you don't take care of it? How bad bad do you feel about that? So similarly, this body is a gift that we've been given. We should take really good care of it and use all the facilities of the body in order to refine our relationship with the Supreme. There's, And not, not only that, in bhakti, there's so much sense gratification. I mean... It's, um, it's filled with, you know, all things that are healthy and, and, and beneficial for uh, the mind and the body. Thank you for your question.
2: I have a question. Uh, The power of association is amazing, Yes, but sometimes uh, you may not be part of association, you you try, but you cannot be in association, so how to keep in check of yourself that you are not getting away from Krishna, You you are still on the path?
0: Well, one thing is to have a sound spiritual practice at home. When you have a home practice, you create a sacred space in your home, where every day you have some practice yourself. You'll feel self-fortified. The other thing is if you live in a remote area, then you have to be a little inventive. And there's a couple ways that you can be, that I've seen people be inventive and get good association. One way is to invite people into your home. Hey, look, invite people into your home and, and then have a spiritual program in your house. My wife and I did it for 16 years in our house our house is about a third of the size of this in California. But we used to just, you know, people would cram in, especially when Nirkula started cooking. Uh, <laughs> then a lot of people showed up. But we did it every, every week, and we invited all kinds of people who wanted, ever wanted to come in, and we'd teach about the principles of bhakti yoga, and we'd have chanting, and then we'd have a big feast. We had all kinds of people come. Some Jehovah's, not Jehovah's, they were um, Mormon. Mormons. I was walking in the neighborhood one day with my chanting bag and they said, they were out doing their missionary work. They said, hey, what are you, what are you doing? And I said, you know, we chant these names of God and stuff. What are you doing? And they said, we're teaching God's message. And they said, well, why don't you come over? We have a program here on Friday night. So they did, on that Friday they came over. So they have two years to, you know, do their mission. And um, they came to the kirtan, everyone sat down and one of them was older. He was kind of, the young one was really getting into the chanting and the other, older one kept looking at him like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and then the, the older one, I could see he was gearing up with literature because he wanted to like not be remiss on his duty and passing it out to everybody. And then uh, somebody put a plate of prasadam in front of him, you know, the spiritual food. And I could see his eyes lit up because they're away from home and they don't get home cooking and stuff like that. And he immediately put it everything aside and just started taking prasadam. Point was, back to the point: if you invite people into your home, you start thinking about how to make your home um, compatible for spiritual programs. You don't look at it like, you know, this is my place and you know just let it go or whatever. You keep it at a higher standard. And the other way that you can have association, I found very handily is by, um, through electronic means. I stay in touch with some of my closest uh, friends, god brothers, god sisters, through the, uh, you know, either using Zoom or Skype or any of the other methods. So that, you know, we talk regularly. When I wrote my book, my, my editor was practically, I mean, we were always together. I couldn't tell he wasn't in the room. We spent so many hours together every single day. And, you know, it's just constant association. So you take advantage of that also. Two things you can do. I mean, there are more, but that's it. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna Chuta Bhava. <laughs> um,
2: I'm, I'm wondering about this difference in mood that... Um, is recommended for us to cultivate in bhakti yoga, which is on the one hand that we're to think of ourselves as the servant of the servant a million times removed. But then when I'm chanting at home, I feel like there's no one, I feel so personal. It doesn't feel removed so far. And sometimes I I struggle uh, to gain that necessary sense of, I guess, practical, action-oriented service that's trying to be in service of the servant of the servant, uh, and then when, when, at, when at home it feels like relationship with Krishna is much more personal and close.
0: Well, it's not that we don't have a direct relationship with Krishna, because we do. We're part, or his parts and parcels. But it's more about our attitude whenever we're performing devotional services that we're in the mood of service. And Prabhupada writes in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita about how this is the mystery of the parampara, that although you may have a guru and you consider that the spiritual current is coming through in that way, but still your relationship with Krishna is direct. It's not indirect. That's the mystery part about it. And definitely when chanting, you're directly in in contact, but the mood is always there. That I will... Um, you know just like once I was with a god brother and we were traveling all over uh, India and visiting various temples and whenever we'd go in the temple we'd pay our obeisances and we'd say the pranams for our guru in front of the deity and he looked at me one day walking out of the temple he goes we're offering obeisances to the deity but we're saying our guru's pranam mantra he said what is that about I said I don't know you're my older God, brother, you tell me. And he said, we're announcing to him that here's who we're with. Who's who, here's who led us in here. <laughs> so in spiritual life, it's, it's more important who you know than what you know. Just like in, any, in most circumstances in life, if, you, if you're connected with somebody and they tell the others that hey, he is, he's okay, and then they say, all right, you can come in too. So we keep that mood, that even as we're chanting, thinking, I'm grateful to Lord Chaitanya, he gave me the holy name, and how did I get it from him? I got it through a chain of disciplic succession, and one thinks of all one's gurus. It's not just one guru, but the your guru, the one who first shows you the path. There's the feeling of gratitude. That's what opens up our channel so that we can actually feel the direct connection, is that mood of humility. Does that help? Yeah, same okay. Yes, Bhaktiska. thank
1: you. Okay. Yes, Pakta Scott. Thank you, You mentioned the analogy of uh, taking a thorn out of another thorn.
2: Yeah. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on that a little bit,
0: please. Well, it's always said traditionally that, or thought that, you know, interaction with the material world is is the cause of suffering. And you know, Buddhistic teaching, the idea is that a desire is the cause of suffering and means material attachment. Attachment to anything material is causes suffering. As Krishna even says in the Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. Because material things have a beginning and an end, you're attached to them, your attachment to them causes suffering because they're going to go away. And so a wise person doesn't delight in them, Krishna says. However, Narada Muni is pointing out this thorn uh, with the thorn analogy because you can use everything that you have, material things, your body, your mind, your intellect, those are all subtle but material. But if you engage them in the process of liberation, that is extricating yourself from the material world and reattaching yourself to Krishna, and you use all the so-called material things, which are normally considered a cause of bondage, attachment to them, but you use them for this higher cause, then, then they're the tools that you use, just like a thorn. And then what you're doing is you're using those tools to take out the attachment that connects you to the material world, which causes the suffering. Does that help? Yes. Okay. Yes.
1: Thank you very much for such an enlightening
2: morning. Um, I'm glad you, so you
1: found d- it so. You said that we are all spiritual beings, and I understand that. Yet, I'm drawn towards material things that you've talked about so much. For instance, you know, I want to, I want to get the latest iPhone, or I want to get the, you know, whatever branded things that I'm drawn to. So, how do I overcome that? And incidentally, if I buy one of
0: those, it does give me happiness. Well, the way you can overcome it is read the reviews. <laughs> well,
1: the reviews are really good. But start
0: with the, you start with the bottom, the, the one star. <laughs> I always do that if I want to buy something. And I go, like, like let me see. OK, 78% people said you know five stars. But well, there's some people at the bottom here. And I look at that and go, nah, I don't want it. <laughs> no, I'm not, that's not my final answer. My final answer is that um it's it's more the spirit in which we use them in that ultimately determines whether they're transformable or not. And it's not that it's not that we can't interact with the world in a in a healthy way. For instance, you know, I'm talking about relationships in the material world as being temporary. That's one perspective. At the same time, it gives us the highest happiness. I mean, what does everybody look forward to that you know, to have you know, break bread with their family during holidays and things like that. Of course, a lot of people dread it also, because it's complicated. <laughs> but, but the fact is, you know, we do have one foot in this world. So it's, it's not, uh, in the spirit of the verse I gave before, yukta haravi harasya, don't eat too much, don't eat too little. Sense gratification is something that we can't deprive ourselves of unnecessarily, otherwise we'll freak out just like uh, you know not too much salt and not too little you find the right amount so that you can you can live a balanced happy life uh, you know i know people they don't they don't want to they don't like to have an iphone it's just not in their temperament or their particular time they rather have a flip phone if you can even find one anymore just cuz it suits their lifestyle better and they're happy with it somebody else they can use an iphone but Point is, you can also be captured by it as well. It's easy enough to, um, like, this analogy is that, like, we're higher energy than the the matter. So this is an interesting conundrum, how I get connected to matter in the first place, right? And I tried to describe it through an example. I contemplate it, and I project myself into it, and then I become uh, connected to it. It's called, in Bhagavad Gita, so there's a way in which I contemplate matter and then I think I can enjoy this and then I develop a sangha, it's mine, and become connected. So also, the idea that we're higher energy, that how is it we become controlled by a lower energy? Because it's, it's Krishna's lower energy also. So Krishna says, the, the world of matter made up of three modes is um, is also divine because it's controlled by him. I'm getting there. I'm, I'm not going <laughs> to. I think we went too long with it. The, the alarm bells are going off. Here, there, and everywhere. Um, either that global warming or something. So, so. Um, Let's say a human being has superior intelligence than matter, can figure out how to make a television set. And humans have done that. So it's just wire and whatever else, silicon. I don't know what goes into a TV. It's some glass, probably. Uh, and other technology. Human beings figure it out. They're superior to matter. But then what happens? They put up the TV, and then they get caught there by the matter. 7 hours a day looking at it so we can become entrapped by it so the yogi is a little careful to discern what do i actually need and and you know use it so i don't become captured by it use it in service and be careful of the environment even as we're using this term yukta vairaga use everything in service but then i say, yeah i need that i need this i need that and next thing i know I'm overwhelmed by these kinds of things. So anyway, your point was that you, you know, you, you like having them, and so the the advice given by Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita is use them for service so that you don't become a slave to them. I'm not saying that you are. I'm just saying that that's that's the balance to be careful when working moving about the world to use it in such a way that Krishna describes in the Gita he gives this analogy that he says Brahma daya karmani Sangam sapapena padma Patram he gives the example how how we should live our life like a lotus and a lotus flower in sanskrit is called padmaja ja means to be born and padma means mud so a lotus which is arguably one of the most beautiful flowers in the world startlingly beautiful it grows out of the mud and then it it protrudes from the water and there's a way that it exists in the water but it never touches the water and it, and to appreciate that analogy you have to actually look at a lotus flower and and see how the water although it comes in contact with it it just it just runs right off it beads off it's as if it's not even touching it at all so he says that a person who lives amidst matter, but doesn't have that mentality that this is for me, it's mine, I'm attached to it, can coexist with it without becoming overwhelmed by it. That's a um, sign that my answers are too long. marman, <laughs> marman. Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, hey! Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman, Natchari Armarman.